Our scripture passage is in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So I'll be reading this passage from the English Standard Version translation, and then we shall attend to the Word of God. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophet who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. I mean, that's my interpretation. <laughs> then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on the dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Let's pray. 
Our God and our Father, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us into a reverence for your word at all times and a heart to believe all of the things that are written in the scriptures, everything in the law and the prophets, even as the Lord Jesus said, for all testify of him. And we pray, Father, that as we consider uh, this great point in Old Testament biblical history, that we would understand what you would say to us even today in our lives following Jesus. Father, we would pray that the richness of your word would feed our hearts and souls, that we would love you more, follow Jesus more faithfully, and be more sensitive to the working of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this story is the uh, final chapter in the life of Elijah, and it's the final message of this series. And so I wanted this introduction to be a glimpse into something of the significance of Elijah to biblical history beyond the historical portion of Elijah's life. That is, the way that God has actually used the life and service of Elijah further on in redemptive history beyond Elijah's own time of living. And he's done so in two ways. The first would be this. The forerunner who is prophesied to come before the Lord Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah, well, his appearance is going to be in accordance with the spirit and the calling of Elijah. So, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. We see this prophetically beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where the word of God says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so then in the last book of the New Testament, Old Testament, Malachi, we have two different references to the forerunner of the Messiah. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, God says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Well, that's actually the spirit of the Messiah saying this. He will prepare the way before me. Then Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, God says, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, just before Jesus is born, we actually have the angel Gabriel appearing to a priest by the name of Zacharias. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And Gabriel, speaking to Zacharias, who's going to become the father of John the Baptist, confirms the identity of the child to be born. Their son John, who's going to be the forerunner of the Christ, and identifies him as the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. So this is what Gabriel says. That he, meaning the child will go before him, the Messiah, 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, he's explaining this mystery about John the Baptist and the relationship to Elijah by these words. He said, For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So part of the continued significance of the prophet Elijah is that the one who comes as the forerunner to the Messiah of Israel, the one who is the historical forerunner to the Lord Jesus, even John the Baptist, is a type of the prophet Elijah. Secondly, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is glorified on this mount in the presence of Peter, James, and John. But who appears in this tremendous glorification of Christ, who appear within the glory and the glory cloud that surrounds the Lord Jesus on this mount? Well, it's Elijah, who is standing there with Moses. Now this is how Luke describes it in Luke chapter 9, 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of, concerning Christ, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word departure in the Greek is exodus. Luke intends the double meaning. Exodus is a common reference to one's death. But it also points to the earthly reality of an exodus of Christ, which is going to be a redemptive death, in the same way that the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt was a great act of redemption. So rather than sending an angel to, on the mount there to talk to Jesus about his coming exodus, in fact, the Lord God has Jesus talking to two Old Testament saints who represent all of Old Testament redemptive history. Moses, who represents the ministry of the law. Elijah, who represents the ministry of the prophets. And together in them, we have all of the law and the prophets symbolically represented. They are there with Jesus to speak about his exodus, his redemption. It's also worth noting that both Moses and Elijah had unusual departures from this life. Uh, Moses was actually put to death and buried by God. Just as Jesus was put to death under the sovereignty of God's plan and buried as God had prophesied. While Elijah, on the other hand, ascends to heaven alive bodily, even as the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven alive bodily. Now, the symbolic resemblances here are too close for most of us as believers to pass this off as accidental. Rather, it looks as though the Spirit of God intended for us to see these connections. So, not only did God use Elijah directly in history to confront the evils of paganism, 
God continued to use the spirit of Elijah as part of the promises of the coming Messiah. And the final showing of Elijah's significance is that he is there appearing with Moses. In that moment, in the Messiah's history, in this world, in which before his ultimate glorification in heaven, Christ is transfigured so that Peter, James, and John actually see his future glory at that time. Moses and Elijah there. Now, but back to the story of the text. This is the famous story of Elijah's translation to heaven while he's alive. Like Enoch, early in the Old Testament narrative, Elijah does not see death. The, the only two men in all of history, well, until that final generation when Jesus comes, of saints and believers who do not experience death before the next life. It's a story that illustrates what God intends for us, though. What God wants of our faith in Him and how God is at work in our lives. In fact, the focused theme, as I want to present it today, maybe worded slightly differently than you'll find in the handout, would be this. The text encourages us to focus on God. What God does with us, for us, in us, to us. In order that we would believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves, especially in the final chapter of our lives when we face the face of death. Now I'm going to adopt the same approach to this passage as I did last week and treat it in two parts. I want to walk us through the narrative of these 14 verses, Elijah's last chapter. And then I want to work through three very significant theological truths that we find illustrated and supported and taught in this passage. And that would reflect the outline that you see in the bulletin. Three important theological ideas concerning the godly servant's certainty, the godly servant's confidence, and the godly servant's godly grief. So let's begin with part one, which will be the narrative. Let's think about this. For some ten years, we've had Elijah and Elisha ministering together. Uh, Elijah has been the main prophet. Elisha, his servant. And now this relationship is coming to an end. Uh, they're making a final journey together just before Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. Now, here in walking through this narrative... Uh, it's important for me to give credit where credit is properly due, which is to say I need to mention uh, the author and the book that has been so helpful in, in looking at the narrative passage. Uh, there's this guy by the name of um, uh, Wilmington, spelled with two L's, by the way, Wilmington, um, and he's written this book printed in the 90s called The Outline Bible. At least Logos has it dated to the 1990s. This man is an incredible creator of outlines all the way through the Bible. Almost every passage I've looked at over the last several years, I've looked at his outline, how he outlines a passage. And though I don't always agree with him, I don't always follow it, the man is an incredible outliner and he's a masterful alliterator. He's probably Presbyterian. So, when we take these verses from, from verse 1 here to 12a, 
he cites five events or five places that will carry you through the passage. So listen to his five-fold analysis of the of these first 11 verses into the first half of verse 12. Listen to the alliteration. He mentions first the route, then the river, then the request, then the requirement, then the removal. Now that takes you up to the first half of verse 12. But I want us to consider all of verse 12 and verse 14 through verse 14. And so that means I've added two more to his list. There's a sixth and a seventh. And to honor Mr. Wilmington, I've also alliterated these particular points with ours as well. So the sixth is the rending, and then the seventh, the return. So seven points that will walk us through the narrative of this passage. So, first of all, the first six verses, we have the route. That is the route that uh, Elijah and Elisha take, beginning at Gilgal, and then going to Bethel, and then going to Jericho, and then all the way down to the Jordan. Now, if you were to map this out uh, and, and look at it in terms of kilometers or mileage, you'd, you'd recognize they did not do this in a day. Uh, they would have to have been marathoners. They would have to have sprinted to have stopped and even talked to the sons of the prophets at three different places in order to get there in one day. So it's, it's really over a period of maybe three to four days that they make this trek, this, this, this journey. As they do so, beginning at Bethel, Elisha is repeatedly reminded by the sons of the prophets. That stands for something like not their biological children, but it's really a spiritual parentage. It's like a school of the prophets or the, a guild of the prophets. Apparently, by the way, in the last decade of Elijah's ministry, uh, Ahab has died, Ahaziah has died. Uh, apparently, this has opened up the possibility and reality of the prophets more publicly existing and not having to be hidden in caves somewhere, uh, and that Jezebel's uh, pogom against uh, what we find in terms of finding, executing, killing these prophets just simply has more or less ceased. But on the other hand, if you look at the geographic understanding of Bethel to Jericho, to the Jordan. You see that these three places where the sons of the prophet live are sufficiently far away from Jezreel and Samaria to mean that they're able to operate, if not uh, always publicly, at least sufficiently far away from the places where Jezebel would want to put them to death. But we also know that uh, during, uh, I think it's uh, uh, before uh, Je uh, Elijah goes to heaven, well, at some point very soon, Jezebel faces her demise. Now, but each time they come to these places, the sons of the prophets will say to Elijah, uh, your master's going to be taken away from you today. And Elijah's going to say, uh, you know, stay here. Don't keep, don't keep following me. Elijah refuses to listen in any sense to the sons of the prophet as if that's a warning. Elisha refuses to listen to Elijah which appears then to have been a kind of a test. I mean, most commentators say the only way to make sense of this is Elijah is testing Elisha's fidelity to his commitment to follow him. And Elisha will not be deterred. 
His loyalty is constantly affirmed to his master. So that's the route. And then we have the river. We come to the Jordan. The 50 sons of the prophets are watching what's going on here. Elijah performs his final miracle. Uh, he takes his, his mantle. He rolls it up. I don't know how they do this. I don't know how stiff a mantle would be. But he rolls it up and, it's, and he can strike the water with it. It's just like when, what happened with the Jordan when Joshua was prepared to cross it. There's a miraculous parting of the waters, and, and Elijah and Elisha pass over on dry ground. That's the significance of coming to the Jordan. All the prophets see what's miraculously taking place. It happens, they cross. Then we have in verse 9 the request of Elisha to Elijah. Because Elijah asked him, what can I do for you? What's interesting is what Elisha asked for. It's a double portion of Elijah's spirit. The background for this actually tells us something significant about their relationship. The background is found in Deuteronomy chapter 21, 15 through 17, which talks about the rights of the firstborn. The rights of the firstborn, they were supposed to receive a double portion in inheritance. Elisha is not the physical son of Elijah. But the fact that he asked for a double portion indicates their relationship spiritually. Elisha sees Elijah as his spiritual father. And Elisha sees himself as Elijah's principal spiritual son. So he has the privilege of asking this. He has the privilege of asking for a double portion. And, and what he asks for indicates that he loves his master so that he wants to have the same kind of, of spiritual endowment that he respects, honors, and has served in Elijah upon himself. He loves his God so that he can serve his God with no less of the proficiency and power and usefulness that Elijah has. And remember, Elijah's ministry in its public sense was one that always put him in the crosshairs of those who were the architects of paganism in terms of religious persecution. But Elisha wants that. He wants everything that God had done in Elijah's life. He wants to carry on the ministry no less than his master had. He really wants to be fully the success, the rightful successor. Now, verse 10, we have the fourth thing, uh, which is the response of Elijah to the request, and that is the, the requirement. What's going to have to happen in order for this to be the case? Because Elijah tells Elijah that this is a hard thing. What you've asked for is a hard thing. Now, many commentators don't understand why Elijah has said this since Elisha is going to be the rightful successor. In fact, you can even look at the ESV Study Bible. This is what it says. It's not clear how Elijah's request can be hard, given that Elisha is ordained by God to succeed Elijah as a spirit-empowered prophet. But this caused me to think about what Jesus said to James and John. They came to him and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, grant that we may sit on your right hand and on your left hand. And what did Jesus say? He's the Messiah. 
And yet he says, uh, can't do it. That's not for me to give. It's not in my hands to give out who sits on my right and, who's on, and who sits on my left. It's in the Father's hands. Well, in the same way, it, it, it makes sense that Elijah is essentially saying, uh, you've asked for what I cannot authorize and give. It might be, but it's going to have to come directly from God himself. And so that's essentially what he's saying. It's a hard thing because he himself can't, it's not up to him to be able to do it. But Elijah promises, if you see me depart, this will be done for you. Otherwise, no. And then verses 11 and 12, first part of 12, we have the removal. Elisha watches and he sees the chariots of fire. He sees the horses of fire appear. This event separates the two men. And then he does see Elijah going up into heaven by the whirlwind, which means that the request for the double portion of Elijah's spirit has been granted. Now, the two further additions to Wilmington's list, the, the rending and the return. The rest of verse 12, we see Elisha's response when he sees his master no more. He rends his garment. He rips them into two pieces. And in the context, this signifies grief. Along with the cries, my father, my father. This is Elisha's grief. And then lastly, the return, which is a recrossing of the Jordan and a return to the ministry calling. Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle that has fallen to the ground. He rolls it up and he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Strikes the Jordan, the water parts. He recrosses the Jordan. In this miraculous fashion, then, he succeeds his master, Elijah. The final chapter of Elijah's story has come to an end. Now, what are the doctrinal truths that are illustrated and supported and presented in this final chapter? Well, three of them. The first one is this. It's about the godly servant's certainty. And the certainty is this. There is an afterlife with God. That's one of the most practical theological truths we see out of this passage. It's embedded in the story. It's significant, and this is part of the great significance of Elijah's earthly ministry and how it ends, that when Elijah comes to the end of his life, we have this visual historical reality that Elijah is transported into the next life without experiencing death. He goes from life to the afterlife, not passing through the portal of death. Now, that makes it clear that the afterlife is real. This life is not all that is. The translation of Elijah to heaven is an historical event. It's a demonstration in history that there is another life after life in this world. And, and even though Elijah didn't really, Elisha didn't see the value of the sons of the prophets uh, basically uh, asking him 
hey, let's go search. Let's go see. Let's go make sure. Let's go. And they spent three days looking to see if they could find Elijah anywhere. And they couldn't. Uh, you know, he reluctantly gives in to their request a little bit further on in the story. They go looking for Elijah. Maybe the Spirit just took him somewhere. Their fruitless search, three days, provides further historical cooperation of this testimony of what actually happened to Elijah. Their search ruled out the possibility that Elijah was still alive somewhere in the world, just somewhere else. Now, what you need to know is this event also stands as a firm witness against paganism. Here's how. Pagans has always believed that there's another world, another life after this life. They've always believed that. But Elijah's translation is a statement that the afterlife is not at all like the pagans imagine it to be. One of the uniform uh, convictions of paganism is this. The body is a temporary experience. But the soul is not temporary. The soul never dies. The soul never ceases to exist. But the current body that any particular soul exists in does die, does decompose, does cease to exist. Further, that soul that never dies will always reappear in this world. It's always going to be embodied in another form. It, can, it will always take the shape of matter once again. It might be a human being. It might be the same biological gender, but it doesn't have to be. It might not be a human being. It might be an animal. Now, the point is, is that paganism has always viewed the physical body as not essential at all to human identity. Uh, the, the physical body is never a determination of human identity. The physical body has no real authority to say who a person is. That's paganism. That idea has existed for more than 3,000 years. We have known about this idea, if you read classical literature, for 3,000 years. The physical body simply houses the soul. The body's going to die. The physical form will be gone forever. The soul survives, always survives, and always reappears. That's paganism. Now, if you see something similar here to the transgender narrative of today, it's not surprising. The rejection of the physical body as a definite and essential part of human identity is a very old idea. Whenever it crops up, there's always the evidence of the pagan thought behind it. Now, in contrast, Elijah, his body, the whole Elijah, all of Elijah, goes up to heaven. There is no bodily death. His body is an essential part of who he is. The afterlife is not as paganism imagines. The Old Testament hope is actually resurrection. It's not reincarnation. And the Apostle Paul makes this clear in his defense before Governor Felix that the resurrection is central to what the Jewish people, what the people of God believe. So in Acts 24, verses 14 and 15, he says this, But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law 
and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Bodily resurrection, continued bodily existence, is the afterlife view of the Old Testament. One further idea with respect to this certainty which we have. The afterlife is mostly a hidden matter in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's hidden to us as biblical saints. Elijah, Elisha doesn't see beyond the transport. Uh, Elijah doesn't send him a message back from heaven. Uh, there's so much that lies beyond the veil that we simply don't know except this. God is there. We're going to be his people. And then sometimes God reveals a bit more about what that next life is going to be like. But that hiddenness has led some scholars to think that the Old Testament saints didn't have any real convictions and knowledge and hope in the afterlife. Well, let me point out that that couldn't be further from the truth. And the authority is the New Testament. Think about what the New Testament actually says about the Old Testament saints. We find the authentic testimony in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Abraham, the writer says, what was Abraham looking for? Verse 10, he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He continues, verses 13 to 16, these all died, meaning all the Old Testament saints, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone, there would have been an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, this is proof the Old Testament saints had deep, deep convictions deeply held about the afterlife and they understood that God had prepared that place for them. One further testimony from the Old Testament the Psalm 70, 73 of Asaph verses 23 to 36. Listen to what the prophet poet says speaking of what is to come Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, listen, all of us need to understand. The godly servants conviction and certainty is that we have an afterlife with God. Even if the door remains closed on exactly what this looks like, exactly what happens, the door is open to this truth. The destination on the other side is life with God. We have Elijah's translation from earth to heaven. That historical miracle points to that reality. Life with God. But that truth then leads to this. 
practical application. We have confidence as believers. The godly servant has confidence in the face of death. We see this in how Elijah approaches what is going to be his final day of life in this world. He doesn't really know, apparently from, from what we can understand, that how he's going to go. He does not really understand that. He may have been thinking that his pattern was going to be just like God and Moses, that he would go across the Jordan someplace over there hidden from everybody. God would, in fact, take his life and bury him. He just didn't know. But in any case, what we see in his, in his journey from Gilgal to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, from Jericho to Jordan, across the Jordan, we see in this his earthly journey to the very end. Your life is also a similar journey. All of us are on a journey day by day to the end of our earthly time. We should note this about Elijah's movement and journey. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's without hesitation. It's an obedience to the Lord as a godly servant. Elijah is facing the end of his life with the confidence of knowing this is God's journey for him. Let's pay close attention to this. The truth that guides Elijah is the knowledge that it's God who determines all of the days of his earthly life. It's God who sets the beginning and the end. It is God who, at the end, provides the means by which he will be taken from this life to the next. That truth, that perspective, is no less true for us than it was for Elijah. And this confidence is embedded in the Old Testament. We're all aware of it. We all know the text. We all know the passage. Most of us have it memorized. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the journey. That's the journey. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That perspective is every bit as true for us as it ever was for King David when he wrote the shepherd song. But we have even greater reasons for confidence than either Elijah or David. 
because the resurrection of Christ from the dead transcends every former revelation that we have this afterlife with God. The death of Christ has removed all possibility that we would face God's wrath or God's rejection when we come to the end of life. The death of Christ has removed all wrath, all rejection, so that Jesus promises us instead a home with our Father in heaven. John chapter 14. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that echoes what David himself said. You and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is the godly servant's confidence? That in the face of death, we have this promise. I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. But no human being can give you this confidence. No one can talk you into it. No one can give you a pep talk or try to manipulate you or elevate your feelings or pump you up into this state of fearlessness. Such measures, such attempts on the part of anyone are not the ways in which God works. The truth that we find, the confidence in this truth, is a matter of you and I walking with Jesus every day. Because if we walk with Jesus every day, then we will continue to walk with Jesus every day. And the last day here will remind us that the next day is our first day with Him there. That's where the confidence comes from. Walking, abiding in Christ. Now, I honestly have a lot more to say. This morning, as my son Bobby was praying for me, his wife Beth said, since this is his last public preaching, is he going to be like the Apostle Paul and preach till people fall asleep and fall out of windows? And I said, Bob, the tendency might be to do so, but I'm going to ask you to pray that I would have brevity and clarity and conciseness. I think we've missed it on brevity. I hope we've had clarity. Let me try to bring this together in something of a concise way, the third point. And this is connected to Elisha's experience. The godly servant has godly grief. And just note how Elisha handled this. In verses 11 and 12, he sees the chariots of fire. He sees the horses of fire. He rends his clothes. He calls out, my father, my father. Signs of the deepest kind of grief. Matthew Henry comments, short, pithy statement. The dearest... 
the dearest of friends must part. Elisha didn't want to leave Elijah. Nevertheless, it was the will of God to take Elijah from Elisha. Elisha's left behind. And Matthew Henry goes on to essentially say this is ever the way it is in the world. Then he says this that's very significant. Though Elijah has gone triumphantly to heaven, yet this world could ill spare him. And therefore his removal ought to be much regretted by the survivors. Surely their hearts are hard, whose eyes are dry, when God, by taking away faithful, useful men, calls for weeping and mourning. You see, brothers and sisters, <laughs> there's a genuinely godly weeping when we are separated. By death, by change and call, by moving away, it's a genuine loss. It's a sorrow. It's a grief. But Elisha's own response to all of this is also highly instructive. The grief is real. But our lives, our callings, our responsibilities do not cease. Elisha picks up the mantle, crosses the Jordan, and continues to serve. That's what we need to know. Godly sorrow does not dampen our motivation to serve. Godly sorrow deepens our motivation to persevere. Elisha wanted to be everything like Elijah. Everything. The grief didn't dampen his desire to serve God. His grief deepened his desire to persevere. I'll close with this. The oldest saint in this congregation is Bernita Bertolucci. This year she turns 94. She became a Christian when she was 40, 54 years ago. Because of you know, walking through her husband's death over a period of two years with Bernita, lots and lots of conversations about life and death. And so the conversation we had yesterday morning was no different. We, we talked about the end of life. We, we talked about being in the last quarter of life. We talked about coming to the end of our earthly lives. And we spoke of one aim. To finish well. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. As we wrapped up and prayed together... She handed me an envelope with something inside it for me to read. And she said, maybe later, maybe on your plane home on Tuesday. But I got back to Janet's. I looked at the outside of the envelope, and Bernita had written, 
there's a great celebration in your future. And I took the letter out of the envelope. <laughs> the print was too small for me to read the article. But not her own handwriting, which was down at the bottom. And she had written out Revelation 19.11. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is the certainty we have as those saved by the blood of Christ. This is the confidence that we have in the face of death. This is our comfort in any hour of godly sorrow to know that we are among those blessed saints redeemed by Christ and invited to the married supper of the Lamb. And even so, this Lord saith, Lord's table before us this morning is a token and a foretelling of that great day. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, sanctify to us your truth as we have it in Jesus that our one great aim, no matter what stage in life, would be to live for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.